Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... I guess Corey Distracted Knockreiner, because I can't think of some interesting middle name that I don't really have. Join me on the dark side. <laughs> on today's episode, uh, we cover... I'm going to cut off your arm, Mark. Expect it. I hope you can use your left hand. Oh boy. We cover a massive security incident uh, targeting a industrial control system impacting a large portion of the United States. And then we jump into the frag attacks, the latest in a series of vulnerabilities. Leave my friends at Fraggle Rock alone. You're going to make the same joke that you're going to make in about 30 mi- nine <laughs> minutes, too? 20 minutes. <laughs> okay. Double down, man. Double down. All right. With that. And I still come up losing. Let's just get started before Corey can make more dad jokes. So it was a pretty dang busy week last week uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. And I feel like we should probably start with what's probably going to be one of the the hot topics for the month or potentially yeah. the rest of the year. If it hits the nightly news, it's, it's probably something. If it causes shirtless people in Florida to go try and fill up Tupperware <laughs> bins with gas. It's or or it, yeah, it causes them to say, please do not fill up uh, Ziploc bags with gas. <laughs> Uh, As you may guess, uh, we're talking about the event that happened on May 7th, where the Colonial Pipeline, which is the organization that manages the largest refined petroleum distribution network on the East Coast, suffered a massive ransomware attack that forced them to shut down their pipes, which caused fears of gas shortages all over the eastern U.S. By the way, callback Thursday. Uh, I guess our listeners don't know we're recording this on Thursday, so it actually worked throwback Thursday. But I think it was 2019 predictions where we talked about ransomware hitting industrial control systems and manufacturing. So we had one hit there with an aluminum smelter, but I would say even that old prediction is is ringing true today. Yeah, this one's nuts. Basically 40 something, I think it was 45% of all refined gasoline products. So diesel, jet fuel, the gas you stick in your car uh, on the east coast of the U.S. or the eastern third of the u.s come through this pipeline basically and so when they got hit and they got shut down uh it was basically there's massive concerns for massive gas shortages across that swath of the country um luckily while it's flowing i I hear that there is one or two places that might still be low for a few more days yeah uh the u.s department of transportation quickly issued some emergency waivers that allowed gas shipments via tanker trucks all the way up to new york Uh, But even that doesn't really come close to what this pipeline was able to do at 100 million gallons a day. (laughs) Uh, So a few days after the actual incident, the FBI confirmed that in a statement that the Russian uh, hacking organization called Darkside Ransomware Group was responsible for the incident. Wow, they they are really embracing the cliche view of a hacker with that name. (laughs) So edgy. (laughs) I mean, it's yeah. I, at, at this point, at least they are embracing like the fact that they have gone over to the dark side. They're now extorting people for money uh, using cyber attacks. But, but wait, before we get too deep in the dark side, I do want to mention, while, while I would not say hacking gas pipelines is super common, that's why this is big news, it's also not the first time 
I, I mean, uh, ju just so you know, industrial control has been targeted. Things like gas pipelines, things that are, let's call them critical infrastructure, not industrial control, but critical infrastructure, have been targeted before, specifically pipelines. Uh, back in 2018, there is a pipeline explosion in Turkey, and, and there's evidence that it was cyber attack related. In May of 2012, the United States Department of Homeland Security warned against cyber attacks against natural gas pipelines. And lo and behold, six years later, in April 2018, a number of, of natural gas pipelines were hit after a targeted attack uh, uh, actually succeeded in compromising one of their third-party suppliers. So it is not totally uncommon. It, while it's not necessarily common, it has happened before. I would say the one thing that will make a good transition to dark side is most of those attacks were very much state-sponsored type attacks, things that one government allegedly was doing against another government for for state disruption purposes. But as we talk about dark side, are dark side state-sponsored hackers? No. And in fact, on their own website, that nice segue, by the way, on their own <laughs> website, uh, they even say they are apolitical. They don't subscribe to any country or any political system. Um, like a bit of history on them. They're an affiliate-based ransomware group. They're based out of Russia, but they're not like, you know, we talk a lot about Russian threat actors targeting stuff like nation state things like you just said. But this just happens to be a group that we believe is based out of Russia, but not actually backed by the Russian government in this case. If I can unpack really quick, uh, Mark said affiliate based ransomware. Another way of saying that is ransomware as a service. They, they're they known for, or also besides launching attacks themselves, having a ransomware as a service offering where they get affiliates, other affiliates can sign up to use this ransomware, your, your benefit as a criminal is you don't have to be technical enough to design it, but by becoming an affiliate, once you install the ransomware, what you do is you get victims. As you get victims, you get paid, but you give anywhere from 20 to 40% of the proceeds to the, the authors of the ransomware. So when you hear affiliate-based, realize that they're affiliate of a ransomware of a service. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to be a malware coder, but you do still have to be a decent social engineer uh, to trick people into basically running it or finding vulnerabilities like unpatched exchange servers, for an example, and installing it that way. Um, so they've been around since August of 2020. So relatively recently, um, there's, they actually have some pretty interesting um, features, I guess you'd call them. So in their initial post on an underground forum where they basically announced their affiliate program, uh, they said that they only want to target big com big companies, specifically ones that will mean a big payout. And they actually have like, I don't know if you could call it ethics in the world of affiliate based ransomware, but they do have a code where they're not they explicitly forbid using their ransomware product against specific verticals, things like healthcare, funeral services, education, nonprofit organizations and government organizations are all explicitly forbidden. Uh, by their affiliates. So good, good for them. They've got some small I, I gotta say screw you no. It's <laughs> it's there's no such thing as a Robin Hood criminal. That that is kind of bullcrap. And I gotta say critical infrastructure is semi related to government. Attacking a a gas pipeline is going to have socioeconomic effects on a company. Plus the reason they do this is purely their own marketing. Uh, you know, they do say we even give money to charity 
And by the way, there is some proof of that. There's at least uh, two Bitcoin transfers that, you know, you can, as we've mentioned before, cryptocurrency is actually totally trackable as far as the wallet. It's not anonymous at all. It might be anonymous in the name associated with the wallet in some cases. Actually, even that is getting harder, but you can track it. In two cases, they have actually given 10K of Bitcoin to Children's International and the Water Project. By the way, both fantastic charities. I would love to support them legitimately. But that doesn't make you Robin Hood. That doesn't make you a good guy. They literally ask for millions in ransomware. We'll talk about how much they got already from Colonial. And so giving 20K which combined is 0.2% of a single million when you've made tens of millions in ransomware. Bull doo-doo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a crap about your stupid-ass manifesto where you say you're the good guy ransomware person. No one should believe that crap. The news should squash it. There we go. Sorry, taking a hard pop-pop Corey stance. Man, fiery. Uh, back to their more crappy qualities, though. They are a, a ransomware gang that does use the new-ish double extortion model, where basically not only do they encrypt all your stuff, but first they steal it and then threaten to disclose it to the media outlets and let everyone know basically that you had bad security and you got breached and you got ransomware if you don't pay. Um, one other interesting thing they do is they actually advertise uh, a, a product, I guess, or a service where they will sell you information about upcoming victims, theoretically, so like an investor could go in and short sale that company before it becomes public that they've been breached by this ransomware gang. So a lot of different ways for them to monetize their criminal activity. Um, they did actually, so like you mentioned, the gas pipelines are government and it's going to cause a lot of socioeconomic issues. They actually put out a statement after the attack basically saying- Oh, we're sorry. We're good guys. <laughs> yes. Our goal wasn't to make money or was to make money, not to create problems for society. Does, does that make a crime right? No. Our only goal was to steal money. We only wanted to steal because we knew the company was profitable. So sorry, we stole. I, I'm sorry. I'm probably putting a target on my back, but this is bullcrap pretend ethics. It's uh, It just doesn't work for me. Fair enough. Um, so there hasn't been any real news about, at least as of this recording, how they managed to install ransomware on uh, colonial systems. Uh, there was a New York Times journalist who had gotten a forensic, recent forensic report from the organization uh, where they noted they were running unpatched versions of Exchange Server. Um, but after that published, Microsoft actually put out a statement saying that there's no evidence that Exchange Server was leveraged as part of the breach. And it's also not in line with Darkseid's historical methods, too. So we don't know exactly how they got in, but at least evidence off of the exchange server thing, it's theoretical that, you know, potentially they didn't have the best security patch practices and could have gotten in that way. Or it could have been the spearfish. Yep. Many, Maybe that's why people mistakenly relate it to an email server. Don't know. Yeah. Many, many ways of getting ransomware onto systems these days. Um, so how about the response, though? So five days after the incident, Colonial Pipeline actually began the process of restoring service, uh, which is pretty quick turnaround for a big ransomware attack like this. Uh, but they did note it could take some days for the process to complete. Uh, most interestingly, though, a day or so after they announced that, uh, Bloomberg published a report that Colonial Pipeline had actually paid $5 million in cryptocurrency to Darkside 
in order to restore that access. So it sounds like it may not be a, oh, we're recovering from backups kind of situation and potentially more of a, oh, we gave in to the extortion demand and now we're restoring access that way. And it may not be associated with restoring access at all because remember part of the double, now this seems weird to me because everyone knows the Colonial Pipeline has been hacked, but the one power of double extortion is the fact that they've stolen data too. Uh, or at least that's how Darkseid has operated in the past. And so the second part of the extortion, oh, you have backups, you don't want to pay, we're going to leak all your data to the public then and embarrass you. So it could be, if they did really pay, it could be because of that. Uh, in fact, I think you'll if you go to Secplicity, we won't talk much about it today, but there's some D D DC police organizations that uh, had a double extortion uh, and the attacker leaked some of their data before finally getting paid a ransom. So double extortion is nasty business. And in my opinion, it just it shows that these are criminal extortionists. They're not good guys in any way, no matter how they talk about targeting their attacks. Authorities should go after dark side just as hard as every other ransomware author out there. I have a feeling they will. Like just because well, they yeah, don't we'll, target. We'll learn why in just a second, yeah. because there's definite government reaction to this. Yeah, just because <laughs> they don't target funeral services doesn't mean, like you said, that they're a good organization and that they deserve yeah. being spared. The, oh, the yeah, you gave long. 20K of stolen money to charity. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it is like, I mean, I yeah, I get it with the double extortion model, how it's, it's tricky, because I'm sure that like a pipeline of that scale probably has very sensitive data that would be bad if they fell into like a, a foreign threat actor's hands like uh, you can imagine I, if they had like designs of their network for example that if they got in the hands of a hostile nation could enable additional cyber attacks against them so it makes sense why you'd want to quash that it just it always sucks seeing the criminals basically win and get money out of yeah. it yeah hey it's it's I think everyone knows that I don't like when people pay. My personal feeling is you shouldn't. I also get that it's that that is kind of a high horse ivory tower position. The one I always give is the example of healthcare. If there's a life on the table, uh, it's a much harder decision. But ultimately, pain just proves the malicious business case. And as long as the malicious business case is still making money, it will continue. Yep. There, there's no doubt about that. Authorities can catch some. If they're still making money, the risk versus reward level is, is going to be worth it for them. So frankly, people have to stop paying for this to go yep. away. So towards the end of last week, as you're now listening to this, um, after this event happened, uh, the White House actually did begin progress on trying to improve cybersecurity across the country, at least with anyone that works with federal agencies. So President Biden issued a 34-page executive order detailing all the actions that the federal government intends yeah. to take. By the way, I, I think that's a record for a length of an executive order, if not of all time, at least in short history. Yeah, it's very it's long by any means of an executive order. And it's one where, like, you know, you see, a, I, I don't want to get too much into politics, but you see a lot of executive orders where they don't really have teeth. It's basically like the... The, the president who has uh, power over certain federal branch organizations says, I want this to happen. But in reality, you know, I would love to see this general thing to happen with no detail. Exactly. And in reality, it's like Congress is the one that actually has the power to do something. So the order does literally nothing. Uh, but in the case of this one, like 
it the order is four federal agencies that do fall under jurisdiction of the the federal branch of the government of the under the president basically and so this one it has the ability to actually be very useful and actually accomplish something uh, as opposed to many other executive orders you'll, you'll see out there um it was it came out pretty dang quickly after this breach it turns out it was mostly in response to like in the wake of the solar winds breach late last year and the exchange server vulnerabilities discovered back in march but even this massive attack against a, a critical infrastructure basically of the country is another reason for this executive order to come out um it's pretty dang long at 34 pages um i read through it and in all honesty like it's great like it feels like it is it's got really aggressive timelines is what i've noticed basically throughout it they set up goals and check-ins at 30 days 90 days 180 days things like that to cover a wide range of things and i i like that i like that it finally feels like someone is taking cybersecurity seriously uh, at the federal government level. And I think you'll get into this detail, but I think we both also think it's great in the types of advice and some of the the requirements being asked yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. So let's go through a few of them. Like it starts out, it basically calls on NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, to publish preliminary guidelines within six months for software supply chain security and then final guidelines within a year. Basically, some of the things it wants to cover are uh, how to check for vulnerabilities, how to find evidence of flaws, um, ensuring up-to-date providence of source code, basically all good security practices um, that now there's going to be a standard for them when it comes to supply chain activity. Um, they're going to ask NIST to define what critical software is in that um, and require agency agencies to adopt security measures for such critical software. It's interesting to me, by the way. I would, I can't wait to see what NIST comes up with because you've heard me and Mark talk about uh, supply chain security for quite a few episodes now, and I don't think it has an easy solution. <clears throat> you know, unlike normal no. malware, uh, the problem with supply chain attacks is sometimes this attack is buried in something that is literally being approved as a valid product from someone else. So be besides uh, me thinking it's nice too that they have these this this uh, just this requirement to make guidelines and to do it within a time period, I'm kind of interested to see what NIST is going to come up with and and how effective it really will be. I mean, the good news is they have a pretty good track record oh, for of sure. coming up with good guidelines for organizations that are basically requirements for anyone that works with the federal government closely, but are often adopted by yeah. just any organization out there because they're I, I wanted to now that you say that something I was going to mention before is while this is a government thing and NIST is really focused on stuff the government has has to follow you should expect this type of thing to affect private company compliance in the future many of the private compliance regulations really do look at NIST as you just said Mark so I wouldn't as you're hearing more about this from us and others while this is a kind of a government executive order, realize that I think it's going to have quite a bit of trickle down into private security as well. Trickle down security. Maybe it will work better than trickle down economics does. <laughs> we Sorry. said we're not getting that, that That's the opinion of Corey Nockreiner, not of the, the podcast or the company. <laughs> yep. Uh, so outside of the, the supply chain stuff, it's going to expand CISA's responsibilities to include creating frameworks for cloud security now. 
and improving information sharing, uh, which this calls back to something we talked about, it feels like about a month ago or so, where Microsoft and a few of the other tech leaders were on the hot seat in front of Congress, basically begging them to add more regulations uh, specifically around information sharing with organizations. And this feels like a potentially a direct response to basically that plea of now CISA is going to be in an even better position to facilitate some of this information sharing. Um, it's going to require companies to work with federal agencies to promptly report cybersecurity incidents. Uh, the NSA and the Attorney General and a few other branches uh, will be responsible for defining what incidents require reporting, types of information must be shared. Uh, timelines, things like that. These are all things where, you know, we always talk of best practices of how quickly you should notify people. Some states have some disclosure requirements. But when it comes to just information sharing like that, there isn't any like hard thing. This is slightly thing. Di different though in that, uh, for instance, what you might be talking about is mandatory data breach disclosure acts. If I have a breach, I do have laws where I have to tell the customer that I might have lost their data. But I don't think there's as many laws as you have to report this to a crime to the FBI or to CISA. Now, whether or not that's good or bad, you know, this is suggesting that you, you now will have to work with federal agencies to report the crime to them too, presuming it is a crime. By the way, I personally think that that's good. I think we should be when criminals are doing criminal acts, there needs to be some authority that is held accountable to catch them. And so we should be reporting to that authority. I will say just to give two sides to every story, uh, some of the times that companies might be worried about reporting things, cybersecurity incidents to federal government, uh, may not necessarily be to hide it, but it may be because you know you you hear these stories of the FBI coming in and taking over and mess. You know, as a company, you have to run an investigation. You have to run your business. You have to recover data and get back. And so, I, I think there's sometimes a trust issue with companies not wanting uh, an authority to to mess up their own business and investigation. But still, I I, I think maybe having smart rules that are written by you know, CISA has been very cooperative with private agent, private companies in doing this. So I think making a requirement for reporting crimes to federal agencies is a good thing if done right. Yeah. And while the order basically tells the NSA and those guys they have to define what they mean by a, an incident in this case, like it sounds like it could expand beyond just, you know, customer data disclosure. Um, and in this case, it could be just a cybersecurity incident in general where sharing information about that incident with other organizations in a similar sector uh, will be generally pretty beneficial. Like it'll help out other companies not fall victim to a same style of attack. So overall, like I think that's a great plan. Like I, I like that we're finally getting some momentum on like answering some of these questions and at least laying a framework. Like it's not gonna be perfect right out the door. I, I guarantee there's gonna be some like Bad There's going to be conflict even in making these, but having the government take accountability and have the discussion is a great first yeah. step. And you need to go through conflict to come to a resolution. Yeah. And for most of these, like it basically it starts with the first 30 days of this are supposed to be these organizations soliciting private companies for feedback on them. It's not going to be just the, the NSA and CISA arbitrarily deciding this is the way it's going to be. 
It's going to be them working with like Microsoft and FireEye and SolarWinds and all these companies to try and figure out what they think is the best solution and then work after that. And it always helps that we, we're a security company that provides MFA and zero trust and endpoint detection response. And <laughs> they definitely are starting to talk about why you need a lot of these advanced security technologies to, to stop these type of attacks. Yeah, you mentioned zero trust and like that's even explicitly called out in the order as well. The federal government must adopt a zero trust architecture and they basically gave them a one-year timeline on it and before that one year there's even other requirements like there's a hard requirement for agencies to adopt multi-factor authentication and encryption for data and transit within 180 days which i think is great like i yeah i my own hot take on that is that like they also right after that say it's okay if you can't do that you just have to put your justification in writing, but at least there's like an aggressive timeline that people can work towards yeah. now instead of them being able to just push it back the whole time. Like MFA should be more ubiquitous than it is right now, especially. Yeah, I think everyone agencies. knows we, we think it's a, it's a must have you'll be breached without it. Uh, not that it's perfect uh, by itself either, but it's much better than otherwise. And by the way, when we say that, I, we were just talking, there's all kinds of different statistics on how widespread MFA really is. My worry on all those surveys is uh, when you ask an IT company, do you use MFA? And they say yes, and suddenly you see 60% of businesses use MFA. Well, it turns out the administrator and a few IT guys use it, but all the employees don't. So to me, adopting MFA means every employee or person associated with the organization is using it daily. Yeah, exactly. Um, going through a few more of the sections of this order, one of them says the federal government agencies and companies that work with them must adopt practices like secure software development environments, uh, using tools uh, to ensure the integrity of their source code and to check for potential vulnerabilities, which I think is great. Like that should have been a requirement a long time ago, I feel like, but now it's going to be in writing. Uh, they're going to establish a cyber safety review board under the Department of Homeland Security to review and assess federal and contractor systems and threat activity, vulnerabilities, uh, mitigation activities, and agency responses. I guess Previously, like each agency was basically left up to their own devices for this. And so now there's going to be one big federal oversight board responsible for this, which I think is another good thing. Anytime you standardize something in security is generally a benefit for that bit of security. Um, it's going to standardize the federal government's response to cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents, which is currently left up to individual agencies. And then... One last bit on there was all federal agencies must deploy an endpoint detection response initiative to support proactive detection of cybersecurity incidents and active threat hunting. Like these are all great things. And they're all on, like I said, really aggressive timelines of basically you got 30 days to start making plans for it around 180 days for the first implementations. And it's all got to be done within a year or you're going to be in trouble with pop, pop, bite. <laughs> There's the pop pop that's more pop pop than me. <laughs> it's also a little more powerful. I have this than you one do. story, Mark, of where I, I met Biden. I was on a train ride. And by the way, I was with my aunt and and she had a hard day. And anyways, back to Biden and and we had this conversation. I gave never mind. It's a Biden joke. <laughs> okay. Nice try. That was a bit of a reach though. You don't think Biden tells long stories? He, he does, yes. Um I I mean, I, I'm not gonna 
you know, it's not like Biden wrote this whole dang thing himself. I'm willing to bet he probably doesn't know what zero trust even means when it comes to security. I I, I, I bet you he actually reads his intelligent agency briefing. So I bet you he knows what zero trust is because he read what someone else told him. Fair. Uh, but it's he, good to he, see. He reads the expert's report. Right. It's good to see some people at the White House taking security seriously after these pretty massive events over the last few months or so. Yeah. And frankly, this this is nonpartisan. This should be nonpartisan. I, you know, I I won't talk about I, I think the other executive, the White House from before did have cybersecurity on a list. I, I do like that the, there are nation state actors that we do have to recognize and not pretend are our buddies. Uh, but uh, I, I will say this is nonpartisan. I think this was a good one. Uh, I, at least the other executive White House talked about cybersecurity, too. So let's push this forward. If, if there's anything we can agree on with the two-party system, cybersecurity should be as apolitical as anything. Yeah, and throughout the rest of the year, we're going to have to check in on this and basically see how these are going along. Like, what is it, six months from now, we should expect to see the first draft from NIST on uh, supply what, chain You mean practices? we have to hold a politician accountable for what he says? <laughs> I mean, this is... No, I, I agree with you. You're right. We should see what happens. It is a 34-page order, and it's going to start a lot of wheels spinning in a lot of government organizations. So I, it's going to be interesting to see how this activity actually manifests uh, You think they'll forward. bring back Chris Krebs? And if they did ask him to come back, do you think he'd accept? I don't know. He seems... <laughs> I follow him on Twitter, and he seems pretty happy with the current pick for CISA, so... I think it's in good hands. And I think he likes the paychecks of the private industry as well. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine he probably does. Um, so let's move on real quick to one last bit of news. Uh, another pretty big security-related thing. That's a great segue from last week. Security-related thing. Thing. <laughs> Very specific there. Yeah, it's a thing. It's with the hacking things. <laughs> um, so the researchers behind the crack Wi-Fi vulnerabilities from 2017 published new research last week highlighting vulnerabilities, additional vulnerabilities in the Wi-Fi protocols dating all the way back to the days of WEP, uh, which they have dubbed frack attacks due to their abuse of fragmentation and aggregation. Frag attacks? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I didn't know they're going after the Muppets of Fraggle Rock. Do they use bad Wi-Fi? Man, that was a, another Leave reach. my Fraggle Rock frags alone. No frag attacks. Boo. <laughs> that did not get the dad joke stamp of approval. No, that was that was pretty embarrassing. Um, so these... I was hoping you'd just start with frag attack before going into the details, but you were blah, 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 whip, Wi-Fi 2017. Blah, 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 important bits of the actual thing and not some crummy dad joke. Everyone knows web is broken. Who cares if there's new vulnerabilities in web? I want to hear how it affects today's yeah. standards. Well, see, the issues are it started with web, but there are actually issues in some of them are uh, issues in the protocol definitions themselves, and some of them are issues in the implementations uh, for example, one of the vulnerabilities covers an abuse uh, with the is aggregated flag with Wi-Fi frames. Basically, it's not authenticated, which means an attacker can modify it and trick the system into processing the encrypted data in a unintended manner. So I'm sure everyone knows everything about that is a aggregated flag in Wi-Fi traffic. Basically, you can take a, a big frame or a bunch of little frames and stick them all together and set some flags on them. And the wireless access point will process them in different ways. Um, and an attack could probably something this. to do with network fragmentation when you're splitting up a packet into little things. Man, that sounds plausible. <laughs> uh, 
Long story short, though, someone could abuse this to inject arbitrary network packets. Uh, the research authors showed a proof of concept where you could force a, a client to use a, a malicious DNS server. Um, it does have a requirement of you need to get them to connect to your server, basically, while connected to Wi-Fi. Uh, but they showed that you could do that just by phishing them into uh, downloading an image from your website, for example. Um, there's a abuse against the design that lets systems split frames into smaller fragments. Basically, all of them are encrypted with the same key, uh, but the access points don't validate that all of them use the same key, meaning if you can insert your own packets in there, it'll try and reassemble them uh, from frames that were encrypted with different keys. This one's more of a theoretical. Those seem kind of hard, though, right? Yeah. I mean, as, as soon as you have uh, traffic being fragmented and arriving at different pieces, how it's reassembled and whether or not the reassembly passes the full checksum or whatever. It, 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 it's, it's theoret you said theoretical, so it's the type of thing that definitely can happen, Yeah, but uh, takes a little luck sometimes. It comes too. off as like a Hail Mary style of attack where it's probably not going to work the majority of times, but you know, everyone small as an attacker, you might get lucky and get one frame of uh, data or something out of there. Um, there's one that abuses uh, systems not removing cached frames that have been fragmented when a client disconnects. Basically, an attacker could connect to an access point, inject a fragmented frame, and then disconnect. It'll sit in the fragment cache on that access point. And when a victim connects then, that fragment will be reassembled with the victim's other frames uh, and could potentially lead to frame injection that way. Uh, but basically, all in all, there were 12 new CVEs uh, mixed between design and implementation flaws. Design meaning they actually had to work with the Wi-Fi alliance to change the Wi-Fi standard in order to fix some of these. And implementation being certain implementations by different vendors were affected by the issues as well. Um, out of the 12, there was really only one relatively, at least comparatively, easy to exploit flaw. That was CVE 2021-24588. Uh, uh, that was the very first one with uh, that abuses fragmented packets with the aggregation flag. But even then, like it only really affects unencrypted network traffic and the overwhelming majority of websites these days are at least HTTPS encrypted. As long as you're using HTTPS and a site protected by HSTS, a host HTTP strip transport security, um, you're safe. Uh, but it is still like a theoretically possible attack. Um, it also requires tricking the victim into connecting to the attacker's server, though. So there's a lot of hurdles to jump to exploit most of these. It's one of those ones where, you know, it is a vulnerability. Uh, but in practicality, there are a bunch of vulnerabilities. Yeah, it, there are vulnerabilities, but in practicality, like if someone was going to try and uh, hack you over Wi-Fi, there's significantly easier ways, like ARP spoofing and DNS poisoning and stuff like that. Like this isn't the easiest, but it's definitely there. Yeah. Um. So, uh, if you're a WatchGuard customer uh, with access points, we are actively investigating patches for APs. Um, and we're going to put out a release with the fixes for these as soon as they're available. Uh, but in the meantime, just make sure that your browsers and everything are up to date so you can benefit from the fact that most browsers these days now, uh, with the recent releases over even just the past few months, default to HTTPS now instead of HTTP. And to, 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 tell you, to, to say more there, Mark, and you can correct me if I'm off base here, but I think it's right, is because these are Wi-Fi issues and each of these 12 CVs are slightly different. This is really a client and server thing. 
So patching your APs isn't necessarily going to be enough for all of it. It, it has to do with the Wi-Fi client, the server being targeted, and, and the, so it, it, you may have to have patches to other th things too, <laughs> Uh, the, the clients of wireless connections as well. Yep. And I guess in the meantime, just disable Wi-Fi and carry around a Cat6 cable and plug in everywhere you oh, can. Oh, but don't forget, there's all kinds of TCP IP vulnerabilities too. So then carry around some scissors and don't forget to cut that Cat5 cable and just never use networks at all. Best yet, just turn <laughs> off just... the computer and then it can't get hacked through USB either. There we go. Unless there's some weird side channel that can get past an air gap. <laughs> One that also <laughs> your powers the device. <laughs> Expert security By the advice. way, don't listen to anything we said. We want you to use networks. We can help protect you against all this crap. Exactly. <laughs> Just make sure you follow the expert security advice by WatchGuard Threat Lab. <laughs> and why does anyone listen to this podcast? Oh, wait. It's because we make crappy dad jokes. Yeah. They like cynicism. Exactly. In, in, in sarcastic quips. I hope. Tell us otherwise. Hey, we want to hear your tweets. If you hate this crap, tweet at us. Let us know. We want to hear them. Put them through a text-to-speech reader. Yeah, that'd be fun. Or if you you get extra credit, we'll probably send you something like a free badge if you write a machine learning algorithm that writes your tweets for uh, the 443 podcast for you. That way you can automate a cool tweet to us every week. Why would we send them a let's just send them a job offer? That sounds better. That's true. <laughs> if you can write that algorithm, you might join the team. Yeah. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. We're looking forward to the machine learning tweets. Okay, bye.